First, we kick it off and we talk about the bungled rollout on Monday of those vaccine call centers in British Columbia. It was terrible on Monday, especially in the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. It was better yesterday, but man, they botched it on Monday. The government here blaming TELUS, the vaccine blame game going on big time here. Here's BC Health Minister Adrian Dick saying this is TELUS's fault. In the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, they decided um, to contract specifically with TELUS and that TELUS would do all this work, and uh, the service provider let us down. Okay, let's discuss this now with Shirley Bond. She is the interim leader of the BC Liberal Party, and I'm pleased to welcome her back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Thanks, thanks a lot for doing this. So on Monday, we saw this botched rollout of the vaccine call centers seemed to go a lot better yesterday in Vancouver Coastal Health. I think they booked over 4,000 appointments over the phone in Vancouver Coastal yesterday. But what are your thoughts on the way this has rolled out so far? Well, I think we joined British Columbians in, in feeling incredibly disappointed. You know, the, the government has had a year, Mike, to actually make sure that there's a process in place that British Columbians can have confidence in. And if you stop and think about this, this is a small group, a small demographic, a small number of people in this demographic that we're supposed to call in and register. You know, we have yet to uh, look ahead to mass vaccination. Uh, Monday was a mess. The Premier admitted that it was, you know, using his words, a bad day. And uh, the government was all too uh, eager to throw the service provider under the bus. The bottom line is, you know, this is John Horgan's plan. He needs to make sure that British Columbians have confidence in it. And uh, even he had to admit that it was a bad day on Monday. Okay. Do you think it's strange that in Vancouver Coastal Health, you can only book an appointment over the phone, but right next door in Fraser Health, you can go online and book an appointment to get your shot. Like, why can't you, why is there not a consistent online system here to book a vaccine shot everywhere in the whole province? Well, that is the question of the day, and we're going to continue to ask Premier Horgan exactly why that's not possible. If you look at Alberta, for example, they have a provincial online booking system. And we are told that there is a uh, an online uh, booking system that is being created as we speak. Well, uh, we have no details. We have zero sense that, of confidence that it will be ready. So not only are uh, residents who live next door uh, to Fraser Health concerned, people in British Columbia want a system that works for them. Of course, we should have an online booking system. And again, I think the, the thing that has really uh, surprised British Columbians is this has been a year in the making. Uh, and, and I think the most disappointing part, Mike, for us is, you know, you sit and you, you hold on to the hope that the vaccine is going to arrive. And the fact that there were 1.4 million calls in the first hour or two tell us how badly people want to, uh, to get their vaccination. And we want it to be successful, too. The fact of the matter is, there's significant concern about the lack of a provincial online booking system. Monday was a mess. And, and the question is, what is the future going to look like when we move to much larger numbers of people that are, are now required to book their appointments? Right. Right. Here's a, I'm going to play a clip here for you of Dr. Penny Ballum. She is the executive lead on the vaccine plan. And here she is talking about the problems with TELUS uh, speaking yesterday to Linda Steele. Dr. Penny Ballum here. 
some cases, the health authorities have trained up some of their own staff to help out. Um, and TELUS certainly spent last night training a large number of agents that were, you know, brought on this morning and through the day to actually help. They recognized that uh, they they were not prepared adequately for, you know, what was um, going to happen. Okay, we got the blame game going on here and the government blaming TELUS. At the end of the day, the buck stops on John Horgan's desk. So who is to blame here? Is it TELUS or is it the government? Well, I would imagine, uh, you know, uh, that contracts have two signatures on them. And this is squarely on the shoulders of, of the provincial government. You know, even listening to that comment from Dr. Ballum, they were training people, you know, last night and adding people this morning, and they weren't yeah. sure about capacity. Yeah. This has been a year in the making. There has been every opportunity for this government to test, understand capacity, make sure that the contract reflected adequate capacity. You know, Mike, the other thing that needs to happen is this government needs to release the contract. We have no idea when it was signed, what the expectations of the company actually were. And, you know, to be, to be fair, Pelos did express regret about what happened. But we should be clear, there are two signatures on that contract. One of them was the government of British Columbia. They needed to make sure that this was going to work, and it didn't. So, you know, you're right. There is a blame right. game going on. But, you know, Minister Dix and, and Don Horgan need to look in the mirror. The blame starts there. They have oversight of this vaccination rollout. And I, and I do want to reemphasize this, Mike. We want it to work. We want British Columbians to, to get the opportunity to be vaccinated so that we can move back to some sense of normalcy in our lives. So, you know, we're asking the hard questions because that's our job. Somebody signed a contract that did not provide adequate capacity. We want the answers, and the government should release the contract. Okay, speaking of that, yesterday in question period, the government was asked, look, disclose this contract, table the contract. Let's see what the terms of this contract are. What are their deliverables? What are the penalties uh, for, no- for non-delivery? How much are we paying TELUS for this? Uh, I'm going to play, this is uh, Liberal MLA Todd Stone yesterday in question period asking the government to do just that. Let's re- release that TELUS contract. Here's what that sounded like. The, the minister has, has also gone out of his way to specifically uh, highlight uh, failings on the part of uh, the service provider TELUS. Um, Mr. Speaker, I, I, I would like to ask uh, the Premier today, if, uh, uh, in light of uh, uh, those, those comments, if he would be willing uh, to table uh, the TELUS contract in the House uh, and tell us specifically uh, what services uh, the government required TELUS to provide. Okay, what was, what was the answer from the government there when you asked them to release the contract? Well, there was a non-answer. There was, a, as, as you uh, rightly point out, the blame game was well underway at that point. Um, and, and, you know, it is, having been a, a, you know, a long-time cabinet minister, uh, you don't often hear a minister throw a company under the bus as rapidly as that happened yesterday. So if the government has, uh, has, uh, is correct in blaming Pellis, they should have no hesitation in releasing the contract. We've got no commitment for them to do that. We're going to continue to pursue it. Um, it is important because this is just the beginning of the vaccination rollout. And I think all of us anticipated that there would be, uh, you know, a lot of interest and, and probably ca- uh, capacity issues. But this isn't the first time. You know, you look back at the COVID relief benefit, that whole 
there was a mess with that. Um, so we have a series of ongoing technology uh, challenges. And this one is attached to the most significant public health initiative in our time. So, uh, you know, I, I guess from our perspective, there's been, a, there's been a year to work on this. We want to know that yeah. the date the contract was signed, are there penalties? Will TELUS actually be required uh, to to uh, to be uh, to pay penalties? What what exactly um, are the specific details that the government signed off on? And if TELUS is to blame, fine. We'll take a look at that contract. We'll look at what the expectations were. But let's be clear: British Columbians trusted and counted on this government to ensure that there is a fulsome well-functioning vaccination uh, process in place. Our worry is this was the beginning. It's a small number. We have no online booking program across the province, and there are millions of British Columbians that still need to book an appointment. We need to get this fixed, and it starts with transparency about this contract. Okay, I think we also need to see the contract for the online system that the government is promising to deliver in April. I think the people deserve to see that one, too. Shirley Bond, thank you very much for coming on this morning. My pleasure, Mike. We'll chat again soon. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the battle now over the Vancouver Police Department budget. This one's really kicked up a notch now. The Vancouver Police Department had been looking for a budget increase this year to around $346 million. City Council didn't see it that way. They decided to freeze the police budget at around $340 million instead. So almost a $6 million shortfall there. Vancouver Police Department not happy about that with a frozen budget. They said that's effectively a cut and will impact police services. Now look what's going on here. The fight is really kicking up here. The Vancouver Police Board yesterday said they had unanimously voted to uh, appeal this decision by city council. This one's going to get kicked upstairs now to the provincial government. What will the the province do about this? Should the Vancouver Police Department budget be increased this year instead of frozen? Now have a listen to this. This is Ralph Kaiser's, you're going to hear here, the president of the Vancouver Police Union in conversation yesterday with our own Linda Steele. And he was asked, what would this effective budget cut do to police response times. Here's what he said. We don't have enough members on the road uh, and their, their response times will go up. I mean, we have seen, you know, over a uh, significant increase in the calls for service. Um, you know, the population continues to grow in Vancouver. Uh, the work has not ended. Uh, you know, our call volume continues to go up year after year. And uh, as was said, without these bodies, without these members that are added to the strength of our department, Uh, We are at the 2009 staffing level. All right, that's Ralph Kaiser's there, president of the Vancouver Police Union, saying this effective budget cut is going to affect police response times. Let's discuss now with my guest, Doug Spencer, formerly of the Vancouver Police Department, a gang expert. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Doug, thanks a lot for coming on. No problem, Mike. Hey, Doug, can you remind the listeners, how long were you a, a cop there in Vancouver with the VPD? 30 and a half years. Yeah, 30 and a half years. So when you hear about a, a budget freeze, like what, what can people expect? Like, you know, with the demands on the Vancouver Police Department these days with a budget freeze, what kind of impact could that potentially have? Well, it'll have huge impact on uh, 
programs they're trying to come up with to resolve a bunch of the issues that uh, they face and the the people of Vancouver face, right? They, uh, Ralph says the the staffing levels are 2009. Well, the population's gone up quite a bit in, uh, what's that, 12 years or whatever, right? It's ridiculous. I, I heard the other day they're, that they're going to uh, the board about maybe cutting the youth school liaison program that yeah. that is that's ludicrous given what's going on with the pandemic uh you know a lot of these kids not to mention the adults that uh their parents of uh they're in turmoil right they people are drinking too much they're they're trying to get through the pandemic whatever way they can and they're suffering all sorts of mental health issues and then what are you going to take policemen off the street there's going to be more fighting more turmoil you know all sorts of stuff so like to take freeze the budget and as the population grows up goes up it, it makes no sense Okay, Doug, let me play this here for you. This is Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer on an earlier appearance here on the show when we talked about this fight over the VPD budget, and I asked him, what does this budget freeze mean for police staffing? And here's what the chief told me. Like Nobody's going to get laid off from the police department, but what it means is that in 2021, uh, we won't be able to hire 61 recruits, and that's to make up for attrition as officers retire off the job. After a 30-year career, they'll be leaving, and nobody will be hired to replace them. Okay, so there had been a plan there, Doug, to hire 60 more officers. That now on hold with the budget being frozen. What kind of impact does that have when you talk about 60 police officers that they were planning to hire that now won't be hired? It it makes a huge uh, dent in the department because when when you've got you know, through a, just attrition, I go to the retirement things every year, and there's 40, 50, 60 policemen and police women retiring. That's a lot of experience. You're walking out the door. So there's got to be a turnover there and a, a passing the porch on thing. If you cut 60 recruits for a year or two, there'll be a big gap. And, you know, there's so much going on. You got all the, it's like a war out there in the streets with all these gang members. You lessen the amount of police that can respond to that and deal with the smuggled weapons and all the things that are causing turmoil and death in our society, not to mention overdose deaths, right? Who's going to respond? There's policemen uh, on the street that are saving people every day with naloxone. There'll be no policemen standing on that corner with naloxone to go and help that addict who's overdosing to death. Speaking to Doug Spencer... Doug Spencer, 30 years with the Vancouver Police Department. Hey, Doug, like a lot of people these days, we've heard this new debate about defund the police. There's a very active movement in Vancouver uh, to cut the police budget, defund the police. Let's hire more social workers to deal with some of the problems he just described, overdoses, homelessness mental illness on the streets. We shouldn't have police responses to these issues. Let's hire more uh, social workers to deal with it. Let's defund the police. What do you What do you say to that argument? Yeah, again, it, they're not thinking things through. A lot of them are just jumping on the bandwagon, uh, defund the police. I, I tell you, in Vancouver, I worked a, a car where we work with a mental health nurse. 
in Vancouver, and I, I did it on two shifts. And you're there as a policeman because these people are extremely volatile. They have severe mental health issues. And they can go off like a rocket, that poor nurse or a social worker. They could get killed quite easily. There was a, a guy stabbed down at Skid Row to death a couple of months ago. So the police are only there to protect them and allow them to do their work. The two shifts I did, we ran into a couple really volatile uh, people with mental health issues, schizophrenia and stuff. And if I wasn't there to like calm things down so she could do her job, it could have been really bad. Yeah. Speaking of Doug Spencer, retired from the Vancouver Police Department, he was there for 30 years. Let me play another clip for you from Adam Palmer, the chief of the Vancouver Police Department. He was on the show earlier, and I asked him, what would you say to people who are concerned about police conduct there is a lot of focus on police conduct these days a lot of focus on the movement to defund the police as we mentioned here's what chief adam palmer said about that we have more oversight than any other profession whether it's through our board the office of the police complaints commissioner the independent investigations office through yourself and the media through civil liberties through all these different uh, coroners inquests there's not another occupation not pilots, not doctors, not engineers that have the same amount of oversight that we do. So there's very good oversight. And just remember that, you know, when we're responding to, you know, 265, 270,000 calls a year for service and over a million contacts with people throughout a year, um, under high-risk situations, there are going to be times when the police are investigated, absolutely. And that's the way it should be for public trust and accountability. But those processes exist. This is not the United States where those processes are not in place. Okay, that's Adam Palmer, the chief of the Vancouver Police Department, in an earlier appearance on the show. What would you say, Doug, about the, the changing nature of police work in the city? There are lots more problems on the street that have to do with some of the social issues we've talked about, homelessness, drug addiction, mental illness. How has that, that changed, do you think, uh, the, the work that police officers do? Yeah, it's difficult dealing with people that have these substance abuse issues and mental health issues, it, it, it's so volatile, right? If you say the wrong word, it's like pushing a button. So, you know, everybody saw the, the George Lloyd thing. It, that was atrocious. Yeah. But that's one yeah. case in millions and millions of cases where policemen actually are able to use whatever force is necessary to get that person under control and handcuffed. No policeman wants to go out there and hurt anybody. That's ridiculous. Most of us are parents. Nobody wants to go out there and harm a kid or beat up somebody. I don't even know where this comes from. It's just the most ridiculous thing, right? So, you know, and the problem is when you're using physical force, it is not an exact science. You, you get, we get lots of training and, you know, try and stay in shape and be able to take control of people without hurting them. Nobody wants to hurt anybody. We just want to hurt you. Sometimes you have to use force to arrest people. Yeah. yeah. Right. What do you think about the, the battle over this budget now? This is fascinating to me that we've got the independent police board now going, going to war here effectively with city council over, over this budget. It looks like it could get kicked upstairs to the, to the province to, to decide. Do you think that you know, the police department budget should be increased by the amount they're, they're looking for, that that budget should be restored? Well, you have to at least, at the very minimum, 
keep the same numbers. You know, it, we're not talking about an increase here. We're talking about just keeping it at par. And it, it sounds like it's been the same since 2009, which is, it, it goes to show the kind of people that are in there doing that work. You know, you're, you're faced with all sorts of criticism and stuff. I'll tell you, I'm so glad I'm out of it. I, I just can't believe it. My son's in there now. And he tells me stories that you just can't believe they're having to deal with. So um, to to try and cut the budget at this time in the middle of a pandemic and overdose deaths and bloodshed in the street with gangs, it's ridiculous. They're worried about putting a stupid bike lane in and stuff. That's what their meetings are about or buying new furniture for the city hall. They give themselves all raises. Look in the mirror. It's ridiculous. Doug, thanks for coming on today with your thoughts. No problem. Take care. All right, welcome back. Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. My first guest this morning was Liberal Leader Shirley Bond, and we mm-hmm. talked about the sort of bungled rollout of the call center on Monday. It was they bungled. A, they had a different. They had a better day yesterday. Yep, they did. Right, but Monday was pretty bad, especially in Vancouver Coastal Health. The government blaming Telus. Yep. Telus apologizing. The Liberals on the attack, saying the NDP have got to take part of the blame for this mess on Monday too. Let me play this here for you. This is Shirley Bond, the interim Liberal Leader, uh, speaking to me earlier this morning well i would imagine uh you know uh that contracts have two signatures on them and this is squarely on the shoulders of, of the provincial government you know even listening to that comment from dr ballum they were training people you know last night and adding people this morning and they weren't yeah. sure about capacity yeah. this has been a year in the making there has been every opportunity for this government to test understand capacity make sure that the contract reflected adequate capacity. Okay, she's got a point. Your thoughts? Yeah, not a bad issue for the VC Liberals to um, to raise here. I mean, this is uh, definitely uh, n- not a successful rollout uh, on yeah. day one. They had a long time to prepare for this. Now, as you say, yesterday was a better day, particularly yeah. in Vancouver Coastal, where TELUS got its act together. Yeah, and they had like four over 4,000 people were able to get an appointment yeah. over the phone line in Vancouver and again, Coastal. Be clear, this is no reflection on the staff of Vancouver Coastal or any health authority. This is on TELUS, but it's also on the head of uh, uh, the government, and basically in terms of cabinet. They had a long time to prepare for this, and uh, it was really a bungled vote. Now, the best thing about this is we're inoculating a relatively small pool of people, almost 50,000 people. Yeah. We don't get to the big numbers until April when we got the age cohorts. We're talking hundreds of thousands of people in a relatively short period of time. There will be a website uh, comes on online in April. It will crash. <laughs> I'll predict right now it's going <laughs> to crash. The phone lines will crash in April as, as well because we're going to have hundreds That's of thousands of people. That's going to be a much bigger pool of people. Much bigger pool. So. Yeah. Great to work out the kinks right now and yeah. work out these problems right now. But no question, this is probably the biggest misstep of the government since the pandemic began. Okay. Yeah. It was interesting to hear some heckling in the in the legislature during question period yesterday as the Liberals zeroed in on this and the NDP feeling a little vulnerable or sensitive on it, didn't like some of the questions, but I thought the questions were completely legit. They had a long time to get ready for this thing. This is like a crucial rollout of this system. And when you heard Shirley Bond say there that she had heard that basically the day before they were still scrambling to 
get people yeah. in place. I mean, I've been corresponding with a with a listener here in the last couple of days who was who had uh, been hired uh, to work in one of these call centers, and she said it it was just a gong show. Yeah. You know, there that she didn't get the training. Some of the training sessions were canceled firmer, right at the last minute. This is firmer ground for the liberals to tread on than other areas of uh, of the healthcare situation for them to and when they challenge public health protocols that Dr. Bonnie Henry sets down like rapid testing the safe schools start uh, the where AstraZeneca is going to go that's a little shakier for them I don't, why, is one, that, why is that shaky I think that's completely legitimate questions for them to raise no I, well, it's questions to raise but to condemn the strategy I think which is what they've been doing is different and I think you see opposition parties across the country walk a very fine line when it comes to separating public health from government policy. Cabinet decisions are fair game, I think, for the opposition. Once you get beyond that, though, in terms of condemning the strategy, is a little shaker. Well, this, I think in this case, though, I think know, it's, it's term, much firmer. Well, in terms of rapid testing, though, in long-term care homes, I mean, this is something that the long-term care homes themselves have been asking for. The province's independent advocate for seniors had been oh, I think asking you can raise for that. The, I think you can raise the question, no, no question, but to suddenly to veer off into another of spot, which is condemning the strategy, which is what they've been doing, which would, did not well, happen under Andrew Wilkinson, who took the position that as a doctor, he wasn't going to challenge uh, a lot of the public health uh, decisions. And also, um, when there's a public health order, to condemn it is different than criticizing it. And that's where they've been a little well, On this one, though, when it comes to the rollout strategy, it's fair game because, again, this is uh, yeah. this goes beyond uh, public health. No, I thought the Liberals did a good job on this file yesterday, and especially when they said, look, you know, you guys are blaming TELUS. Okay, show us the contract. Yeah. Show us the contract for TELUS. What are the deliverables in this contract? What are the penalties for non-delivery? Uh, what are? How much does this cost? How much are we paying TELUS? Yeah. And, and there is nothing from the government. They did not disclose this contract. At some point, they're going to have to. Um, now they're going to they're going to hide behind third-party interest here, which is, it, governments always do, as we know through FOI requests. It'll be interesting if we ever get the nuts and bolts of this TELUS contract. Clearly, there had to be some sort of um, standard measurements in there. And in terms of staff uh, who were supposed to man these call, call centers. And obviously that didn't happen in Vancouver Coastal. They didn't have a backup system in, in Vancouver Coastal as they did in other health authorities. But again, once we, if we get into April and we're suddenly inoculating 30,000 people a day, this will all become a distant memory. But until we get there, I think a lot of people are going to okay. be upset. Well, things did go a little better yesterday, and let's hope it continues to go well here today and in, in, the, in the days ahead. Where are we at now with the number of uh, positive cases we got and also these variants that are showing up now? Yeah, so we're stuck at a high plateau, and we have been for, for weeks now, if not months, 500-plus cases a day. The variants now are showing up in greater numbers, and there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, so we hit 576 variant cases uh, yesterday we were at 250 on Friday, so a double, more than double. Uh, of concern is the sh is the arrival of the Brazilian variants, which is yeah. uh, considered to be variant, which is considered to be um, more problematic than even the other two. Even though the UK variant, the B117, is more common and transmissible. In fact, it's the dominant virus now in 10 European countries. It's got a major play in 27. But one of the reasons we're finding more suddenly discovering more variants is the testing. Um, uh, protocol for this is different than it was a couple weeks ago. So we're finding variants quicker than we were a couple weeks ago, which may just reflect the fact that variants have always been there or have been there for a lo longer period yeah. of time. We just haven't been able to find them. In the past, we did what was called genomic um, 
uh, testing on this, sequencing, and that was taking a couple weeks to discover whether COVID was a variant. Now we can discover it within a day. Okay, it's interesting that on the one hand, we've got this plateau of cases that you've mentioned, variants showing up in BC, which is concerning. At the same time, though, we've got Dr. Bonnie Henry and other officials, including Premier John Horgan, saying like, look, we're get, we're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe we can start to lift these restrictions. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can have a more normal summer. Let me, let me play this here for you. This is uh, John Horgan here talking about easing restrictions, particularly in churches, which are still shut down. The optimism that Dr. Henry has, I share that by the time we get to the end of this month and into April and the the, the season for many uh, uh, denominations, whether it be Passover, Vasaki, uh, Ramadan or, or Easter, uh, just to name a few, uh, that people will be looking forward to uh, coming together in small numbers, to be sure, but coming together to acknowledge and recognize these uh, important spiritual moments in the in the faiths of all British Columbians and then looking I think optimistically towards the summer and a return to normal activity. Okay, so you think the government's getting ready to reopen churches and for in-person religious well, services? It, it won't be the government, it'll be Dr. Yeah, it'll be Bonnie about. Henry. Yeah. Um I don't know. You know, you look at the numbers, Mike. Um, we've been at 500 cases a day for weeks. It just hasn't really budged. Our positivity rate is approaching 7%. That hasn't really budged for weeks. Uh, our active cases are more than they were a month ago. So unless something dramatically changes in the next few weeks, I, I, I don't share that same optimism. But March is said to be really the, the critical month. Uh, once we get beyond March, maybe things start to relax if the numbers go down. Okay, we followed all week the uh, the Megan and Harry. I knew you were going to bring that up. On and we continue to follow the, uh, <laughs> the the continuing fallout here. Now, yesterday Here's we talked. Morgan. Piers Morgan, okay, so Piers Morgan, the very outspoken commentator in the UK, stormed off the, st- the set of Good Morning Britain yesterday yeah. after he was challenged for his views on Markle. He's been very, he's been very critical of Meghan Markle. Yesterday, basically doubled down and mm-hmm. said, look, I'm not taking back anything I said about Meghan Markle. Here's what he said this morning. Here's P- Piers Morgan. I believe in the right to yeah, uh, be allowed to have an opinion. Uh, if people want to believe Meghan Markle, that's entirely their right. I don't believe almost anything that comes out of her mouth. I think the damage she's done to the British monarchy and to the Queen at a time when Prince Philip was lying in hospital is enormous and frankly contemptible. So uh, if I have to fall on my sword for expressing an honestly held opinion about Meghan Markle and that diatribe of bilge that she came out with in that interview, so be it. Okay, not backing down at all, and the cameras, well, did, cameras did you clicking hear away. The cameras clicking yeah, away there. That shows you uh, just how big a story this is in Britain. An interesting, a poll. Uh, I think it was in the Globe Mail today. Just quoting a, a poll in Britain that uh, the Brits, for the most part, don't back Harry and uh, Meghan. Now they don't necessarily back the royal family. Uh, but they don't like uh, the fact that uh, they came out. There the way seems they did. to be there seems to be more support for Meghan and Harry in the United States. Yes, yeah, and also amongst younger people, yeah. which is understandable. Uh, the Brits are very defensive when it comes to the royal family, as is the Brit- British press over there. They're on the defensive because Meghan Markle and Harry are calling them out for racism. So of course yeah. they're going to be on the defensive. But you just again the the soundtrack there. You didn't have to see this to he- just to hear it. The enormous amount of media presence around Piers Morgan there yeah. shows you what a big story this is in Britain. All right, welcome back. Baldry's Beat, Keith Baldry. I got Brad West coming on next, and uh, a lot of people Poco. think maybe he should run for the leadership of the Liberal Party. Do you think that's possible? Yeah, I don't know where that, <laughs> if that's Brad West's political um, 
DNA, whether it's the BC Liberal. I'm saying it's necessarily the NDP. He sort of straddles the two parties. I think he is ambitious, but I don't think he's going to run for the Liberals. He's ambitious for sure. He's yeah. an up-and-comer mayor, and he, he's pretty good, pretty smart on hitting the hot-button issues in a very populous yeah. way. He's coming up next. Let's go to your phone calls. James and Burnaby. Hey, James. Hi. Um, Keith had said that it's guaranteed almost that the website's going to crash when it's opened up to more ages, and I think he's right. But what's the issue there? If you look at, you could just buy more website server capacity. How do you think companies like Google handle billions of searches a day? You can do mm. that. They're just choosing not to. Yeah. Okay, James, thanks. Yeah, interesting point. I never thought of uh, Google being uh, a comparison. But um, caller's right. Uh, there is, I've talked to health officials. They do expect the, the site to crash. It's crashed in so many other examples around the world. Uh, Alberta's crashed. Our campsite thing crashed. Our We talked about this before. Our um, the, the, the federal government The COVID CERB, relief payments COVID re crashed. Yeah, uh, the government's CERB payment crashed. Uh, but... What happened in those crashes, they got up and running very, very quickly. So I think there's going to be some hiccups. Inevitably, there will be. So I suspect these problems will be behind us by the end of April. But the first few weeks, just like we're seeing right now, yeah. are going to be rocky. Let's go to Russell in Coquitlam. Hi. Hey, guys. Yeah, I guess hey. I'm just expressing my disappointment in the, in the phone system. You know, we're dealing with a group of individuals that are all over the age of 90. They have their challenges at best. Why didn't they roll out a system where those born January, February, and March called on Monday? Those in you know April, May, June called on Tuesday, and so on. Why didn't they make it more easier for this you know demographic that is scared, you know, and confused? And well, you know, it's, well, it's, a, it's, it's a good, just, it's a good point. Anything the government gets involved, in, they seem okay, to thank up. Thanks for the call. You know, we're, we're talking about a relatively small cohort of people here in the first week, and I think that's why they thought we can do, we can do this in the mm -hmm. first week, because we're talking, what, like... 47,000 40, people yeah. over the age of 90, uh, about a little less than half of them already had their vaccinations because they're in long-term care homes, plus about 30,000 uh, Indigenous people over the age of 65, of which six to 8,000 already had their shots. So, um, yeah, a relatively small number of people, uh, and they thought they could get through this. What, what I've found interesting, just again, anecdotally, we've been bombarded with emails and phone calls from people. It appears that for the most part, uh, from what we can tell, uh, it's the offspring of people over the age of 90 <laughs> who are phoning in on behalf of their parents. Sure. And yeah. they're the ones who are yeah. doing the, the 100, 200 phone calls a day trying to get through. Yeah, it's on not, speed dial. Yeah, over it's and not over. people over the age of 90 doing the actual uh, phoning. Let's go to Ed in South Surrey. Hi, Ed. Yeah, I'm going to switch gears. A little bit of karma for you if I've got my facts right. I believe Pierce Morgan, when he first hosted, uh, took over from Larry King, his first guest was Oprah. And now, you know, some time later, Oprah has uh, exerted her black power, and he's uh, been fired. Well, Oprah, Oprah scooped him um, to get this interview. He used to have a pretty good working relationship with Meghan Markle, and at, at some point she cut him off. And maybe yeah, he was upset I like, about that. I don't profess to know the ins and outs of uh, Piers. And I don't know what you mean. By, I don't know what you mean by black Oprah. power. But uh, I thought Oprah is a, is a very skilled interviewer, and she delivered two hours of, of riveting television. Uh, it was a very good interview uh, skills on display by Oprah Winfrey. One thing I find fascinating about this, I'm not a celebrity watcher, Hollywood yeah. type thing. What I do find fascinating is how this is now starting to reshape British politics. This particular issue, and it's the British papers are completely mesmerized with what's going on here and they're turning it into the political arena as well well you talk about the hot button issues on this thing you've got race you've got mental health 
You've got class and privilege. Mm-hmm. You've got you know young, how young people in, yep. in this uh, in this environment are like you know that's a, a pretty potent combination. Oh, a very potent cocktail, political cocktail, and yeah. it's reshaping British politics. John in Parksville. Hey, John. Hey, how you guys doing? All right, Good. listen. I just wanted to say that uh, I really appreciate this NDP government and what a steady hand they have, and they're uh, they're doing right by me and a lot of low income people. That's it? That's all you got? You well, call, I know, call I me up just to praise Horgan? Angus Reid's poll out today has John Horgan with the highest approval rating, I think, uh, of any premier in uh, in the country. I, I haven't looked at the numbers. I suspect they're probably a little lower than they were before. But clearly, the NDP continues to ride a wave of support that really, I think, most in, um, incumbent governments enjoy. Jason Kenney's numbers are down. Brian Pallister in Manitoba's numbers are down. Which reflects so we are seeing some incumbent governments starting to see some Alberta, erosion of their support. Alberta, Manitoba, notably. Uh, again, though, Justin Trudeau speaks why we may have a spring election. Donna in Vancouver. Donna, we got 30 seconds here. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. I think what the pandemic has shown me is is just the incompetence of the politicians. Um, for us not to have an online booking system for vaccines, like that's just that just is nuts to me. And mm-hmm. in the Globe this morning, there was an article about Canada not being able to track um, the barcodes on the vaccines, and we we need technology across the country. That's incompetence at the federal government level. Thank you, thank you, Donna. Ten seconds. Yeah, a lot of lot of uh, grief and push back against governments of all stripes on the vaccine rollup, whether it's nationally or provincially, it's well learned. All right, as we mentioned earlier, we're talking about the BC Liberal leadership race on the show earlier this week. It's a year-long contest here to select a replacement for Andrew Wilkinson, the now former leader of the BC Liberal Party, who will jump into this race. Well, the speculation here in Vancouver's Georgia Strait newspaper, the headline reads, What's up with Brad West and the B.C. liberal leadership race? It then goes on to speculate, could the mayor of Port Coquitlam jump into the race here to become the next liberal leader? Well, let's ask him. He's on the line right now. Mayor Brad West, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, here's your opportunity now to announce your bid for the BC <laughs> Liberal leadership. Is it on? So, Mike, here I am enjoying a nice Saturday with my family. Um, my wife wants to go to IKEA and HomeSense. My son wants to go to the park. And then I open up the old Twitter and I see uh, a journalist, and I use the term loosely. Uh, saying that I'm going to run for the Liberal leadership. So my first thought was, um, was this guy smoking? Um, They must have run out of tinfoil. And and why didn't he call me? Because if he called me, it would have been really easy. Uh, But I guess he wouldn't have had his story. Okay, that's, but, you're but, talking but about Mike, Charlie, Charlie Smith here. He's been around a long time. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, but, but, but then, Mike, on second thought, I might have the perfect resume for this. So... You know, one of the strongest voices in the province I would submit to you with respect to money laundering and calling for a public inquiry to hold Christy Clark and Rich Coleman and Mike DeYoung and other members of the previous government accountable for turning a blind eye to what was happening in this province, turning the province over to uh, the the, the so-called Vancouver model of uh, washing 
fentanyl money and organized crimes money clean in our housing sector and in our casinos. Very strong against that. Uh, opposed yeah. very strongly when the government, previous Liberal government, ripped up collective agreements with the lowest wage healthcare workers, sent some of them back who had been working for 20 plus years and had earned benefits and wages. Note, you go right back and you're starting at zero. Uh, opposed when Christy Clark said, hey, we're going to open up mines in British Columbia, but you know what? No British Columbians want the job, so we got to bring in temporary foreign workers to do the work. So, uh, Mike, great uh, resume for running for the Liberal Party, don't you think? Okay, well, yes, you have certainly <laughs> been critical of the previous Liberal government. You've been critical of Christy Clark, the former Liberal Premier in the past. But I, I just note, Brad, that you're, when I look down your resume, you, you worked with the... Uh, the Steelworkers Union for some yeah. time. And didn't they at one point, the Steelworkers, when you were working with them, didn't they throw their support over to Christy Clark at one point in one election? No, that uh, that's a, a, a oh. perhaps not a common mistake, but it's one that sometimes people make. That was the iron workers. And I know iron workers, oh, okay. steelworkers, sometimes people get that mixed up. But uh, no, that was the iron workers local in one election, not the steelworkers. Okay, in, in the past, like, I've often thought that if Brad West ever did step up into provincial politics one day, I, I've always thought that you would be with the, with the NDP. I mean, you've got a background in the labor movement. I know that you, I believe, didn't you work for Mike Farnworth at one point? Weren't you his constituency I, assistant I, or something at one point? I did. Yeah, I did, and, and Mike continues to be one of my very good friends. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, like I imagine you were you've been a member of the NDP, I, I would imagine, in the past, or maybe you're a member of the NDP now, are you? Or uh, I'm, I'm not a member of any political party. I have been a member of the NDP okay. in, in the past. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell right, you honestly right. what I think. Um, I think too often parties get in the way of doing what's right for for people in the province and in our communities. And, you know, I was a member and got to see how parties operate, and I think that, unfortunately, this is common of all parties. Uh, too often, and, and look, I have a lot of respect for people who put their name forward, but the way our system is set up, one of the first things they do, it seems, when you get elected as part of a party, is they open up your brain, and they suck out the part where all the independent thinking occurs. And I think you know, most people who know a bit about me know that I, I like to think for myself, uh, I don't like to yes. have, you know, a, a, a party whip or anyone else say, hey, this is how you're going to vote or this is what you're going to do. Uh, I like to reflect upon my own values, the values of my community uh, and the people I work for. The, and, and that's the people of Port Coquitlam and do what I think is best for them. So that's how I make decisions, not on the basis of, well, this party or the other party. So, okay, um, so ju that, just that, to that put, would be a definitive so no, just to be really clear about running for a leadership okay well let's let's be clear about the bc liberal leadership now so so you you can state unequivocally you have no interest in running for the the leadership of the liberal party yeah mike it'd be a cold day in hell okay how's, how's that for okay, definitive fair, uh, fair enough but i i know though i imagine that you have been approached because i mean you're a a mayor, uh, a young mayor in uh, a growing community in British Columbia. You won, you won the the mayor's chair in Coquitlam and at Port Coquitlam in a landslide there. Uh, and I, I've talked to liberals who who have looked over and said, "What about this guy? Maybe he could come over." I mean, have you ever been approached to run for the liberals in the past? Has anyone ever come up to you and said, "Hey, come no. on over"? 
No, I, I think this is one of those things that the chattering classes like to talk amongst themselves about. And it, I, I don't know, I guess it's a compliment. That's nice um, that my name would be included maybe. But uh, no, no, but no one's approached me uh, and, and I have no interest in it. I, I've got the best job in the world. I, I love being mayor of Port Coquitlam. This is my hometown. I've lived here my entire life. I'm raising my family here. Uh, and we're doing amazing things in this community. And that's uh, that's exactly what I want to be doing. But look, I'm, Speaking you know, to, I'm very fortunate. Yeah. Mike, I just am very fortunate that that also gives me an opportunity to advocate for people in our entire province on issues that I think are important. And you've seen for me that I haven't been shy in the past about doing that. And, and I'll continue to do that yeah. when I think that something's important and needs to be articulated on behalf of our people. Okay, speaking to Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West, r- making it pretty clear, not interested in running for the BC Liberal Party leadership. Let me get you, I'm interested in your take on sort of the provincial political landscape right now. I think you've got an, an NDP government in power that, that won a large majority here in the last election. Uh, John Horgan government still holding up pretty well in the polls. The, this Liberal Party seems to be a little bit at sea right now. Uh, going through a leadership process where there does not seem to be like an heir apparent or or, a, or an overwhelming favorite to be the next liberal leader here and take on this NDP government. Now, earlier this week, Brad, I had Aaron Gunn on the show. He is a conservative commentator on Facebook. He's got like 67,000 Facebook followers. His videos, his political videos on Facebook have racked up like over 50 million views and he's a right-wing commentator. And I know the liberals are they're nervous about this guy because he is mulling a leadership bid for the Liberal Party. I think he's going to launch one. And I'm going to be very curious to see here if the liberals actually let him run because I think they might try to block him. But he was my guest on the show earlier this week, and we talked about the BC Liberal Party, and here's what he told me. There are a number, to your point, uh, of these country club political strategists that jump from campaign to campaign looking for their next paycheck. And they've been very vocal to my uh, prospective candidacy. I can't deny that. And, uh, you know, that's okay. I get it. I represent change and they feel threatened by that. And and that's okay. I'm here to talk about policy and solutions and to British Columbians directly. And I don't really care what they think. You mentioned Mark Marison. I mean, I, I don't know this individual, but other people have told me mainly bad things about him. And as far as I'm concerned, He's the personification of what is wrong with this this party. Okay, Mark Marison is the ex-husband of Christy Clark and a very prominent liberal who had been on social media saying the Liberal Party should block this guy from running. He's too controversial. He's too far right. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that and like where the Liberal Party is at right now and if this guy Aaron Gunn should be allowed to, to run for the leadership? And, and if he did run, what, what do you think would happen? Yeah, well, far be it for me to offer uh, advice to them, but... I mean, look, this is very typical of parties that spent uh, a a long time in government, uh, lost connection with people, go into the opposition and then become adrift. Uh, You know, that happened to the NDP, as you'll recall, as well. Uh, And so we've seen this in in the province over the years. And, and, uh, you know, that party rightfully is in the penalty box with British Columbians because of... Uh, what happened, and some of it I, I just described uh, previously. And, and so I think they've got themselves an aden- identity crisis. They don't know who they are. They don't know who they represent. They got whacked in Metro Vancouver uh, all over the place. 
and so, you know, I think it's going to take them an awful long time to figure out uh, their identity. Uh, and, you know, in, in terms of whether people should be able to run or not, I mean, I don't care. That's that's kind of their their business. I, I'm always in favor of letting letting people run and put forward their ideas and, and having trust and confidence in in your party and your members to, to make the right decision. Uh, I, I am not into, you know, people in a, in a back room deciding, you know, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you know, you put it yeah. to the people who support your party and, and they sort it out. If the party members want this Aaron Gunn guy, then, you know, that says something about their party. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they are, I think, Mike, uh, in a real tough spot right now. And again, I look at some of the things that happened in their very long time in power, and, and they, in my opinion, are rightfully in the penalty box. Well, it's great to have you on, as always. Thank you for coming on with your thoughts today. Thanks a lot, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, welcome back to the show. In the span of one week, two large, high-profile virtual events have been Zoom bombed. Yeah, Zoom, of course, a very popular video conferencing app has just taken off in popularity during the COVID-19 pandemic. So just how safe are you when you decide to go on Zoom? Our show contributor, John Jang, now takes a look at those virtual security concerns. John. Good morning, Mike. Earlier this week, we covered how an event celebrating International Women's Day was Zoom bombed by individuals who disrupted the virtual gathering by sharing messages of hate and vulgar images. Unfortunately, the exact same thing happened at another high-profile virtual meeting. On Monday night, the disability filibuster, with participants from all over the country taking part, they too were exposed to hateful messages and explicit content, and the anonymous Zoom bomber even used Nazi imagery in this particular incident. Is Zoom really as secure as we're led to believe? Joining us on that is Farshad Abbasi, the founder and chief security officer of Forward Security, a leading cybersecurity company based in Vancouver. Farshad, how come these things are still happening one year into the pandemic when we've been using these programs constantly for months? Uh, when everybody started working from home remotely, Zoom gained quite a bit of popularity. And at the time, uh, the defaults were not quite secure. For example, when you created a Zoom meeting, uh, by default, didn't even have a password. So if you can imagine, if you, you know you create a meeting without a password, anyone that knows that that meeting exists or they can just enumerate through all the possible numbers, meeting numbers, and just happen to land at one that doesn't have a password and they can just walk in and, and post whatever they want. And, and, and so hence Zoom bombing became a, a term and, and, that, and that's when it sort of began. But quickly Zoom uh, put some controls around it. So what they did is they said, hey, we need to have passwords as a default. So it doesn't make sense to start meetings, meet, you know, create meeting invites that do not have a a default password. So that's one of the things they put in, which was great. Now, okay, granted, uh, does everybody and you keep those? A lot of people that uh, that I know, they'll just for convenience sake disable the password, even though that it is there's a default. They just say, hey, we just want people to pop in. This is a public event. And, you know, they just assume that everyone's nice and they just remove the password to make it easy for attendees. And then, of course, the pranksters take take advantage of it. And then, you know, of course, as, as I mentioned, without a Without uh, any protection, it's fairly easy for them to enumerate through the possible meeting numbers and just land at ones that don't have a password. But having having said all of that, even if you do put the password, the passwords are numeric and you know they're ten or eleven digits. So again, there's a fairly good possibility that even if you have it, they could uh, enumerate through the passwords as well and 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 end up with the with the correct password and then enter your meeting. 
And so what Zoom did is to further put a control around that to mitigate it, they created the concept of a, a lobby. And so that was the idea was that even if you get guess the password or, you know, heaven forbid you didn't have one, you still enter into a lobby before you're led into the main event, right? So that way someone can moderate you. Hey, who are you? Are you allowed to be in here or not? Again, it would prevent, you know, the chances of something like Zoom bombing happening. But in reality, a lot of people disable the lobby, they disable the password, therefore they leave themselves open uh, to those types of uh, situations. Seems like the first step in Zoom defense is to be skeptical in a sense and never assume that somebody who wants to get into the call is someone that you should trust right away. I mean, basically, you have to play the role of a virtual bouncer. Exactly. I organize, uh, I organize local meetups uh, in the security community in Vancouver. Um, I'm the chapter leader for the, uh, the application security group called OWASP. And you know, it's the same thing. We have those concerns when we have our meetups. We know who's in the lobby. Is this person going to be a prankster? We let them in and they're going to start posting, you know, doing the Zoom bombing and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, there's another control as well that people can do. You can disable share, uh, screen sharing uh, by default so that, you know, people that enter your meeting, they can't just put up, you know, bad pictures and things like that automatically. You can, you can have it so that the moderator has to, you know, uh, give them access. So there are layers of controls that you put in. But again, you know, a lot of times you just want to make things easy, right? You want to make it easy for people to enter the meeting and, you know, no lobby, no password, no screen sharing protection. And of course, that you'll end up in those, in those types of situations. Generally speaking, would you agree that Zoom is safe and secure and we should trust that platform? They're definitely not going away. They're, uh, they're tools that are here, to, here with us to stay. And regardless of whether COVID happened or not, that model was happening globally. I, I worked uh, for a global bank for a number of years. And you know, we'd already shifted into these remote working models just to save on real estate costs and office costs and all that kind of stuff. So this has just accelerated that movement and accelerated the adoption of these technologies and also highlighted all the lack of a lot, lot of the security uh, issues that existed in some of these things. Like as we saw with Zoom, when it gained uh, you know, popularity last March, all of a sudden, uh, when something becomes popular, of course, everyone tries to find flaws in it. So quickly, within the first couple of months, um, you know, attackers and researchers alike found tons of problems, but you know, Zoom quickly staffed up on the security. And you know, within the first uh, you know, six months, they were constantly putting out patches every day and they fixed majority of those vulnerabilities. They even went and fixed some of their architectural concerns where there were concerns around data being routed through you know, servers in China, keys being issued, in those in, in those uh, data centers and they've addressed those and in fact they've even added a button you can see where your data is going which data centers is going through whether end-to-end encryption is, is, is there or not so they've really added a lot but what happens in these cases is when you lose a bit of reputation it's hard to gain it back so although they've spent a lot of effort you know fixing security and in fact they're probably actually really good you know a lot of people don't know that and that initial uh, reputational loss is still with them. And in fact, they lost a lot of um, you know business with governmental agencies and things like that, that uh, it's going to be hard to, for them to gain back even with all the added uh, security. Farshad, for those wanting to improve their cybersecurity, what are some ways they can look into doing just that? Um, well, we can check out our website, forwardsecurity.com. And if they're interested in you know what's happening in cybersecurity around Vancouver, I'm part of a nonprofit organization uh, called the Mainland Advanced Research Society, or abbreviated for MARS. We organize number of events such as the B-side, the annual B-side security conference, and this year is coming up uh, March, uh, May 9th. After the Vancouver International Privacy and Security Conference, VIPFS, which is also in May. In addition, that there are other events that I'm a part of that I organize. Uh, for example, the, the application security chapter of OWASP uh, that, uh, that happens here. We have monthly meetups, and we're also going to be uh, organizing a British, as part of the BC um, Aware campaign that happens annually, we're going to be doing an application security sector day. Uh, which happens on March 30th. So those are 
free events, some of them, some of them are ticketed, but most of them are pretty reasonably priced and, and very educational, and I highly recommend people to check them out. He is Farshad Abbasi, founder and chief security officer of Forward Security. Thank you so much for giving us some time here today. My pleasure, John. Good to talk to you. Okay, that report by our own John Chang, and John joins me now. Good, interesting stuff, John. And and you were mentioning off air here that uh, you found out about another one. I mean, you've been there's been two uh, high profile virtual events that got this Zoom bombing treatment, but there's been another one, I hear. Yeah, that's correct, and it's pretty close to home. So apparently, on Friday night last week, a UBC event on climate change was Zoom bombed, and this is uh, really quite distressing. Distressing because it was a BIPOC panel, and uh, the instigator or whoever was Zoom bombing actually shared, of course, racial slurs and again more vulgar languages. So it seems like Mike, over the pan uh, of this past week, this is a really troubling trend, and a lot of Zoom high-profile meetings are getting bombarded. I guess people get their their thrills doing this. Do you do you trust Zoom, John? Do you use this app? I do. And in fact, I use it to record some of the interviews that I've done for this show. So I do use yeah. it, but I try to follow some of the restrictions. I have my own personal password. I make sure there is a waiting lobby so that I'm the only one that allows access to those meetings. And I would suggest anyone that looks into using Zoom or if you're using it already, follow those steps and try to be as safe as possible. Okay, John.